Hello there, and welcome to the SLP Now podcast, where we share practical therapy tips and ideas for busy speech-language pathologists. Grab your favorite beverage and sit back as we dive into this week's episode. Welcome to the podcast. SLPs have submitted a lot of questions about speech sound disorders and some specifically asking about the cycles approach. And I'm so excited to tackle some of those questions with our guest today. I knew our guest would be able to break down the cycles approach for us because she's a little bit of a research nerd like me, and she's incredibly talented when it comes to creating practical speech therapy resources and materials. In particular, she created a resource to make the cycles approach incredibly easy for SLPs, and she'll mention this during her presentation. And I know you're going to love all of the practical tips and strategies she has for us today. So without further ado, let's introduce Shannon Warbeckis. She's a rock star SLP. She's worked in outpatient pediatric clinics and in the schools, particularly in preschool and middle school, and she also shares practical tips and resources and creates materials. And you can find her on her blog at speechamusings.com and on social media. So welcome, Shannon. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. We were just talking before we went live. I'm so incredibly excited to hear your answers to these questions because you have such amazing resources and I know you'll have lots of great tips for us. But Before we dive into all of the nerdy stuff, I'm really curious about how you got to learn about the cycles approach and what led you to create a resource to help us with the cycles approach. Yeah, it's a good question. So the first couple of years after I graduated, I worked in an outpatient clinic and there I saw mostly students or children with autism. So I was doing a lot of AAC And then when I switched mid-school year, I switched into a school contract job and it was mostly preschool. I had never done cycles. I had actually, I don't think I'd worked with someone with a phonological disorder since grad school. So I just dove in and realized, I think it was like 50% of my caseload had phonological goals. Shortly after starting my job, me and my husband went on a vacation and I was just ranting about how confused I was about cycles. And I just started jotting in my notebook all my thoughts about it, trying to like figure out what I was going to do when I got back. You know, when you're contracted into a school, you're kind of, at least I was just thrown in. I had a whole caseload. They were missing minutes from earlier in the year. So I didn't have a whole lot of time to be researching and organizing this all during the school hours. So that's when I kind of dove into cycles and tried to figure out an easy way that I could get everything set up for the whole school year for a lot of my caseload. That's amazing. Yeah, it worked out great. Yeah. And I know it's incredibly popular resource that people love. So it works. Yeah, Yeah, Um, it did. And it helped me so much. I mean, I was, I was like, so drowning. Like I said, it was just a whole different population when I switched. So it was kind of from a need from myself too. Yeah. Awesome. So now we'll get to dive into the nitty gritty pieces of it. So what is the cycles approach for those of us who (laughs) are familiar? Yeah. So the cycles approach, just as a basic, is an evidenced way to treat phonological disorders in children. It was developed by Barbara Hodson, I think maybe in the 70s. It was a long time ago. And it's kind of just recently, I think in since maybe 2010, ASHA started posting about it, doing a lot of research on it. So what makes it different than like an articulation approach is that it treats sound patterns and processes instead of individual sounds. And what makes it different than maybe a traditional phonological approach is that you cycle through sounds even before a child might have mastery on a sound. 
you kind of keep moving. So an example of the cycles would be, you might do final consonant deletion first, and you target each sound for 60 minutes. I can talk more later kind of how I organize this all, but you might do final consonant deletion first and target final M, then final P, then final F. Then you might move on to cluster reduction and then target, you know, SM, SP, SK. And then you kind of keep cycling through processes and sounds. I have a kind of an analogy that I give to parents because sometimes I think the hard thing for me and, and I think parents when trying to understand the cycles was like, when do I move on to a different sound? When do I switch processes? Am I cycling through sounds or am I cycling through processes? And it gets kind of confusing what you're actually cycling through. So I give the analogy of like, if you were doing a physical body workout cycles style, you would have like your arms, your legs, your abs, those would be like your processes. And then within those are specific muscle groups that would be like your sounds. So within arms, you'd have like your biceps and your triceps. If you're doing a cycle-based workout, you would do arms for a week and you do biceps for 60 minutes, then triceps for 60 minutes. Then the next week you'd move on to legs and you do different leg groups broken up like that. And the perk of cycles is that when you're working on the different body groups, so let's say you move on to legs, your arms are given time to recover and you might actually see growth even when you're not targeting it because you just keep moving along, which is really nice. So I try to give parents that analogy because I think it helps them understand we're working on these big groups that have separate small things within them and then cycling through to kind of give those body parts a rest, you know, so you're not just doing arms nonstop and working to the point of fatigue. They have point a break to kind of build up and, and see growth when you're not just directly targeting it. That is an amazing analogy. I've never heard that <laughs> and I love it. So yeah. good. That helps my brain. I think the hardest part about cycles, like I said, is just imagining like, when am I moving on? What groups are we moving between? There's just a lot of moving pieces. So for some reason, thinking about a physical workout makes a lot more sense to me because I don't know, you don't want to just do arms all the time or your arms would just like be jello and never have recovery time, you know? So it's kind of, you don't have to be able to like do a push up before you can move on to legs, for example, you're just keep on chugging. So that kind of helped my mind visualize what I was doing. Yeah, I love that. So helpful. And you kind of touched on this already, but why would you choose this over another approach, like the traditional approach to articulation or complexity or whatever yeah. else is out there? So for students with phonological, like if you have an articulation disorder, I wouldn't choose this. But for students that have phonological disorders, I like it in the school setting because it's super, super structured. Once you're set up, it takes very little work to kind of keep going. And it has a really good carryover piece. I found it really easy to implement. I've seen good growth. So I do use other approaches. I'll be honest that most of my preschoolers, we start on cycles. And then if it's not appropriate, we move on to something else. I think I just like it because it's structured. It's been really effective. And when you're really busy, it's, it's a really easy way to implement an evidence-based structured approach to kind of your phonological therapy. Yeah, that makes sense. So you touched a little bit on the types of students who would benefit. Do you have any more on that? Or are there students who definitely wouldn't benefit from cycles? Yeah. Students that are have severe phonological disorders that are hard to understand, that have significantly lowered intelligibility to me are like perfect for cycles. It's best if they can sit and attend to activities because you got to get a really high drill work in. This is really drill-based. I've had some success doing a play-based you know, method, but they still have to be able to play and get that drill in. So 
if I'm chasing the kid around and they're not repeating any words and I'm getting like five repetitions a session, you know, which, which does happen, I might work on something like the core word approach, just to where you're focused on intelligibility on a smaller set of functional words. And then sometimes I'm able to move back into cycles. But that would be a type of kid where I might start with cycles and then realize we're just not getting in the repetitions and they're not, you know, adhering to kind of, I have a really rigid session schedule and I kind of go through this thing. If they're not able to do that, then I might shift approaches. And again, sometimes I would shift back into cycles. So it's not just like a pick one and and that's it for the next three years. You know, I might kind of move back. But if I'm having trouble getting that drill in, sometimes another approach makes more sense. That sounds good. I assume you use a different approach for your older students. Yeah. So I have done zero cycles since going to middle school. To me, there are just more, if my kids are, by the time we get to middle school, either kids are on an AAC device because of lowered intelligibility. We're working on just like core functional words. Honestly, I haven't done a lot of upper elementary. I kind of switched straight from the real lowers to the middle, but middle, I'm doing no cycles at all preschool, I think it's super, super awesome. And then either you're going to start to see progress in a year or two with cycles or your approach should just be shifted into the upper years anyways. That makes sense. That's super helpful. Before we dive into all of the treatment stuff, we want to start with an evaluation. So do you have any tips or strategies on doing an evaluation that will set us up for success and give us what we need Mm -hmm. to the cycles approach? Yeah. So when I evaluated in preschool, I usually did a complete standardized assessment that specifically looked at phonology skills. I've heard good things about the HAP. It's Hodson's assessment of phonological processes. So that one is like strictly from Hodson, who's the creator of cycles. I haven't used that one myself, but I think that's probably a pretty gold standard for this. And I've heard good things about the DEEP as well, the Diagnostic Evaluation of Articulation and Phonology. The one I'm most familiar with is the KLPA, the Con Lewis. And because you can use that one with the Goldman Fristo, so it just analyzes the errors in the Goldman Fristo and it'll tell you what phonological processes are happening, if any. So once you do that, I would really spend time analyzing the errors. And I think that's a huge part of these tests. So you're looking at not just what processes you're seeing, but like, are they getting vowels correct? Are their errors consistent throughout the test? You might look at the types of errors. They might have omissions, substitutions, or distortions. So you're kind of seeing, are they all omissions? A lot of my phono kids are a lot of omissions. So they're just not saying any sound there at all. And then I'll also do something informal. I usually do a specific informal measure that I just made because I use that throughout the cycles. So it's just to measure progress. So I like to do that right at the beginning, just so I have a good baseline on the informal thing that I'll be doing. So that's kind of to look at the phonological disorder. There's also lots of other parts that I usually add on for these students, like an oral motor evaluation. I would recommend ruling out hearing. I've caught a lot of hearing impairments from these types of students. I would strongly, I wrote like seven exclamation points after this, strongly recommend looking at language because phonological disorders are language-based. So a lot of my students end up kind of in the getting special ed services for reading or kind of pre-literacy skills. So just looking at a lot of the language skills as well. Again, look at consistency of productions, stimulability. I usually spend a long time assessing stimulability for what they missed on the phonological assessment, because actually a lot of the students I've worked with with phonological disorders have really good stimulability, which is 
really helpful in the cycles approach. So when I note that like, oh, they're actually really stimulable for a lot of these sounds, to me, that's a really good indicator that the cycles approach might be really, really appropriate. If they have low stimulability, it's trickier to do cycles because you know, you're only practicing stimulable sounds and words. So if they're not stimulable for very much, I would again, maybe resort to something like core vocabulary. And then I always do a connected speech sample. I read recently on the informed SLP that the percent consonants correct the PCC. So you're looking at like how many consonants are correct in a connected speech sample or in a word list. So I usually look at, you know, PCC, again, just as a way to measure overall progress, overall intelligibility. So that might be like a good long term goal. So that's a lot, but that's kind of like, you know, all the different parts that I might do in, a, in an assessment, an initial assessment. Awesome. That's so helpful. And then, so you've got all of this information, all of the data, <laughs> like yes. how do you make sense of it? And how do you start identifying treatment targets? It is a lot of information. And I think this is the step that gets really tricky. A lot of people, I think, know how to do these assessments. And then when you're actually moving into an approach, it's like, how do I organize all that information? So as a general rule of thumb, I target sounds and processes that are stimulable, like I mentioned. So uh, during this eval process, I'm trying to keep track of like, they can say S blends, they're just not in their speech, that would be a great target. I assess each process on that informal screener, I usually just do 10 words in each process. And then words that were produced or sounds that were produced correctly between 40 and 70% of the time are usually my initial targets. So if final consonant deletion, if they were stimulable between you know 40 and 70%, I'd throw that right into my list. If they were able to produce clusters with 50% accuracy, I throw that in. So I try to jot down anything they're stimulable for and producing 40 plus percent of the time. So those are great first targets. If they're only struggling with a sound or a process in a specific position, which I'll be honest, was rare for me, usually it's just like a complete kind of mess. You know, there's lots of things going on. But then you just target that specific position or sound. So generally, the first four that I work on are syllable reduction, syllable structure, cluster reduction, and final consonant deletion. I'll say that that, that I, not, not 100% of the time, but that's pretty consistent. And then, you know, I usually do those four processes first, and then I add in other ones like stopping, fronting, or gliding as they're demonstrating mastery on those first four. I only target four processes at a time in one cycle. So starting with those four is usually just a good general rule of thumb. Also gives a lot my students a lot of success. So syllable reduction, you're not even looking for sounds in that you're just trying to get those marked syllables. And usually I can get that, you know, pretty quick. And then my students are kind of excited. And it's a good way to start. And then within each session, I usually only use five words, I try to get 100 correct productions. And again, just target all the stimulable sounds within a process. So that sounds like a lot, but what I always remind myself is four processes, five words, 100 productions. And then again, all that should just be stimulable. If they can't say it, exclude it for now and stick to the things that are stimulable that you know they can say in a, in a rapid 100 correct productions a session. You know, If they're not stimulable enough to get 100 correct productions, that's not a, a good target at that time. So again, here, like this might lead us to say, you know, you might start cycles and you're not able to get 100 correct productions because they're just not stimulable for really anything. Then again, I might back up, do the core word approach, introduce an AAC, and then maybe come back to cycles until they're stimulable for enough to cycle through. Okay, that's super helpful. So four cycles, five words, and yep. 100, 100 productions. Yep. And then with those five words, do you have a mix of different sounds or do you do like one day you're just doing 
Yeah. So each sound should be targeted for 60 minutes. So Mm -hmm. I like to write minutes for 60 minutes a week, if you can, if not, it's fine. It's just easier in my, my mind, you know, to, to separate it week to week, but you might target like final consonant deletion that first, then you're going to do final P for 60 minutes, then final M 60 minutes, final, whatever, you know, 60 minutes, and then move on. So you're targeting all the final sounds they're stimulable for 60 minutes at a time. The cycles, I'll say when you're doing it in real life, that it moves very slowly, because you know, it takes a long time to get 60 minutes. So one week, you might, you know, work final P the next week, final M, then the next week, final something else, then cluster reduction, you might do 60 minutes of SM, 60 minutes of SK, 60 minutes of SN, and you know, keep cycling through that and then move on to a different, then you might do stopping, for example, so you're doing 60 minutes of each sound, if that makes sense. That's super helpful. And then, so that is a long time. Like what strategies do you use to keep it moving and to keep it fun and engaging? Because you use five words for those 60 minutes. Each session. So, I mean, honestly, I probably do do five words for 60 minutes, but you know, in the school setting, I'm often not doing 60 minutes. They're broken up, Mm -hmm. you know, two times 30, three times 20 or four times even 15 for our movers. So I try to do shorter sessions whenever appropriate. I've seen progress on 30 minute sessions. I've never done the 60 where you do a full thing. But I do have a really structured session schedule that I kind of mentioned earlier. So I have a visual schedule. It says listen, practice, listen, check. So at the beginning in the listening portions is that auditory piece. So I actually do amplified me just reading a word list. And I recorded those on my computer so that that my kids just sit hooked up to my computer right at the beginning. And they just listen to me reading the word list. That way I can amplify it as needed. They love it because they get their little headphones on. I liked it because I could get my session set up while they were listening. So the listen, practice, listen, check kind of system works really well. I mean, in 15 minutes, that's a lot to get in. So it keeps things moving really fast. In the practice section for the longer sessions, I do drill. And then I might do a a game like bowling with the same five words, but just to give it, you know, some sort of difference. So we're not just sitting at the table, but even the drill, we'll do coloring, we glue them into books, we do daubers, you know, the kind of the classic speech motivators, but I keep it really simple because those sessions with those four parts sessions go really fast. So that's kind of part of the reason I like it too, is that it's really structured. And there's four parts to each session, my kids like the routine of it. And it does it goes very, very quickly. Once you're trying to get those 100 productions. So yeah, and then the check is checking for stimulability at the end. And that's where I get all my data. And I do just do 10 words to gather data right at the end. I might check to see where we're going next and write it down because I tend to forget things between sessions. So I'll be like, Oh, we're going to do this next time. And then I get to see them next time. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, what did I I can't remember what I wanted to do anymore. So I do right at the end that check time, I'll usually write a little note to myself, like do, you know, stopping target the F next time or something, you know, whatever. So that check at the end is kind of a nice time to wrap up and and see where I'm going next. Awesome. Super helpful. Like, I'm not disappointed at all. <laughs> it's so good. Okay. And then we always get this question about any topic we talk about, but how do you tackle writing goals? So I have a goal written that I use for each process. So like mm-hmm. my final consonant deletion goal is we'll reduce final consonant deletion by producing final consonants in CVC words with 80% accuracy. 
obviously it can alter that. If a kid's making slow progress, I might isolate one final consonant that I'm assessing instead of, you know, all of them. If I want to look at more big picture gains, I might write a goal for, I know some districts have to do like long-term and short-term and my districts do just write like straight goals. So like mine, that would be perfect for my district because it's easy. But if you, you know, I know some people have to write like a big one and then little objective. So a big one might be, again, the percent consonants correct measure or an intelligibility measure. And then I write specific goals for each process. I usually only write like two processes because they're not going to be able to correct. I mean, actually some kids do, but you don't want that to be the expectation, but you don't want to write like six processes. If you're chart, even if you're cycling through them, I, I tend to not write a goal for everyone I'm cycling through. Cause that's just a lot. So Usually I stick to kind of the hierarchy, like syllable reduction, syllable structure, cluster reduction in that in kind of a specific order. And then I write goals for kind of the lower ones that they're they haven't yet mastered. So I might just write two goals for two different processes that they can't yet get rid of. So my goal writing is a little bit easier. And I usually use word level too when I do cycles. So cycles really does stick to the word level. They don't do a lot of phrases. Sometimes I use phrases with the cluster reduction, but other than that, most of my goals are pretty much word level as well. Awesome. Do you have any other tips for organizing the actual treatment piece of it? It, it is. It, I feel like organization is like 75% of the battle with cycles. Like once you're in it, it's so good, but it is like, I don't know. I'm really a messy, pretty type B SLP, which I know might be rare in the world, but this, I feel like for some reason, the organization is clutch for me. So I have a spreadsheet for each student that's doing cycles. I print it because I like writing and it has a column for the process that I targeted, the specific sound I targeted. And then I have the dates that I write down when I did them and then an accuracy that I take every day. So that helps me keep track. So then like if the student has 20 minute sessions, for example, I might have three columns because you know that would total to the 60 minutes. And then I have to write, I saw them on September 9th, then September 10th, then September 12th. And then I know, okay, we're moving on to another sound because I've filled up my three columns. And then that that also gives me the data. So then I can write data each time, you know, a quick percentage as well. So I like having this kind of spreadsheet printed to just keep track of all of my dates. Because I think that's the trickiest thing you need to target each sound for 60 minutes. So unless you're having 60 minute sessions, you've got to have a way to keep track of how many minutes you've targeted each sound those forms work really well for me. But I know people who even just have little check boxes or some sort of system. But I think that's the trickiest part is getting that, you know, the dates and the sounds or the minutes to total up for each sound. And then you do you collect your data at the end during the check. I do. Yeah. And I know people who do it different. Some people do it right when the kid walks in, they just do 10 quick ones. I feel like the beginning of sessions for me is really chaotic. Kids are kind of coming in and I liked the routine of them getting their headphones on and kind of getting settled in my room. And then I like just doing it at the end before they left as kind of like a checkout. Oh, you got to do this quick before you can leave. But I know a lot of people when they walk in, they do the quick check so that it's, you know, that might lower their accuracy a little too and be more accurate because they're not thinking about all of their sounds. So if you're having trouble, like, I'm assessing at the end and they're getting them all right. You know, the beginning might make more sense too, but depending on kind of what works for you. I like the the structure that I had. And I, I saw mostly preschoolers too, where they still have a lot to work on. So assessing at the end, they're not getting all of them right all of the time. So yeah. <laughs> and I think problem. as long as you're consistent, it like yeah. your data is gonna be Exactly. It is what it is. And you're comparing it apples to apples. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and whatever works best for the structure is that makes total sense. Yeah. 
So in terms of your target list, like, do you have the list of the 10 words for the different processes just ready to go? Or how do you choose which words you're going to? I have it ready to go. So it's in a binder. Um, I have a page for each process that lists, it might say like cluster reduction at the top, and then it has each cluster and then a, a word list underneath it. And I keep that in a binder. I keep my assessment pages in there. I keep the little assessment pictures that kids label in there. And I just, I keep my parent letters in there. I send home a lot of home carryover for cycles. So I keep that all in there. And this is all part of your toolkit, right? It is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is what I put all together was kind of word lists, session notes, flashcards, just so it's all kind of self-contained, I suppose. But yeah, I know a lot of people who do cycles with no materials as well, or they have the materials, like they have our tick cards and stuff already. So they don't need, I mean, a lot of SLPs might have everything that they need already. But yeah, that's kind of what I, I put together for my own ease. <laughs> yeah. And so you also mentioned the home carryover piece. What does yeah. that look like? Yeah. So I send home a little letter that just says, well, so when I did preschool, I had a lot of itinerant students, which was actually really great. So the parents would come into my sessions and then there's very little to explain because they're seeing what I'm doing. Again, I usually use that home workout analogy that seems to help them understand kind of when we're moving between muscle groups or processes and when we're switching muscle groups or processes. I usually explain with that analogy what cycles is. And then I send home a little note that says, practice these 10 words this week. And again, that's why it's sometimes easier if you can write minutes for 60 minutes a week. I find it easier for family to understand this week is this is SM words. Next week will be SK words. You know, the following week will be. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit easier. But I literally send home black and white flashcards. I make little paper envelopes. So I just fold a piece of paper in half and I staple the outside edges, fold that in half, paper clip it closed and just keep black and white. Usually they're colored because my students color them during our sessions, send them home. It's usually like five to 10 words. Like I said, I try to keep the word set really small. And then I just say drill them for a really, really good student. I actually worked with a mom that was a speech pathologist and I worked with her daughter. And so she, so she was drilling like two or three times a day. But for, for most families, I just say, if you can read them through once a day, have the student produce them once a day, every day. That's kind of what I ask parents to do. They're doing the same practice that you're doing yep. in the sessions it, that week. Exactly. Yep. And because I'm only doing stimulable words, it works. You know, and I don't send anything home that the student isn't stimulable for, but the cycles approach is all kind of based on they should be stimulable for this. So it actually makes, again, the parent carryover piece easier because they're not struggling through sounds that you have to use specific elicitation techniques to produce. You know, it's just the kids should be able to say it given a focused, structured setting. So... Yeah, it's it's a pretty easy home carryover because it's literally just practicing five words repeatedly throughout the child's day. So that's such a good system. I like that a lot. Yeah, that's why I like sense. cycles. It's a system. <laughs> and I think I like systems. Uh, you know, when you're busy and if this can take off 20% of your caseload where it's just done for you because they're doing cycles and you know what you're doing next session. To me, that's like where the time saving comes in because it is a system. So yeah, and it takes a little bit of time to wrap your head around it and get yeah. it set up. But you could get these materials set up in like, if you have the card decks or whatever, you yep. could do it in like an hour yep. or exactly. so. I see the card decks, getting the card decks is the part where my hand starts to cramp and I'm cutting them and land, you know, that's like the, that's the laborious part. But beyond that, I mean, this is really just getting spreadsheets, getting a whole system where you do this and this, then this, and then you're good for, I mean, 
your career as long as you want, you know, to, to do cycles that just, then the kid just starts into kind of the whole system and it's, it's pretty easy. Yeah. And I know now is a little bit of a crazy time. Like when this comes out, some SLPs might already be on summer break. So it's the perfect time to assemble some of those materials. If you're listening to this in the middle of the school year and like, I want to start it now, but I (laughs) can't do all the things. Like you can totally just print, like find black line versions to print and go. And I say even mommy speech therapy has those printable free cards online. I'm like, just go on there, print those. And you, I mean, you can implement this with anything. Once you get something that's consistent and it's just done for you. I mean, there's no secret to this, you know, it's just, it's kind of a complex system of funnels that you're putting this student through. But once you have that done, you can do that pretty much with any, you know, materials, but the spreadsheets, I mean, you can make in Google or Excel or something, you know, it's all pretty easy once you get that set up. So yeah, the summer I set mine up in the summer, I actually went over, I think we were watching like the bachelorette or something. And we, me and a bunch of friends like cut apart the whole two box in like one night. And and since then, I mean, I've, I don't know how long ago I even made that five years and it's, it's still perfect. You know, you can just pull it out and use it. So it totally takes upfront work to get everything together. But once it's there, then you're good. You don't have to prep every week for those students anymore. Yeah. Working smarter. Yes. Working (laughs) smarter. A little bit of work ahead of time and then reaping the benefits for years to come, which is amazing. And I love that idea of making it like into like a party, just like a prepping party. Yeah. Well, if you have friends that aren't SLPs, they can do some of the work for you. My mom laminates a lot. (laughs) My mom does too. And there are like parent volunteers too. Like you can totally just print this out and have them cut for yep. you. Like when I was in the elementary school and working in the preschool, there was a mom who really wanted to help out, but she couldn't come in during the school day because she was asking, I really want to help. What can I do? Yeah. And so I would just send home stuff for her to cut. And yeah. she was so happy. And yes. it's just amazing. So we can get really creative. And That's true making things happen. Even if we don't have an hour to put aside now, yeah. there's, we can get creative and make this happen. <laughs> I had my itinerant parents, like I said, I saw a lot of itinerant that came in and some of them were so bored during the sessions, like while I'm working, that they were like, can I just like cut this pile? I'm like, sure. So like, they would just be cutting in the corner and you know, I'm like working. It's, it worked so nicely. And then I had like my next week done for me. So smart. So yeah. Smart. And the nice thing about cycles or any sort of reusable materials is again, it just takes that upfront time and then you're ready to go forever. So you're not, you know, there's, I don't do themes when I do cycles. I don't do anything that's, that's different throughout the whole school year, every single, you know, it's the same. And that keeps kids from being bored inherently just because you're constantly moving through different targets. So, you know, this is, to me, cycles is one of those things that's really super time consuming in the beginning, but again, really super good once it's set up because you're not switching through themes or the timing of the school year doesn't really matter once it's set up. Yeah. Yeah. It's a perfect summer project. If you're in the summer (laughs) listening to this. I love it. Giving us some homework. Yes. (laughs) Um, And then I'm curious too, because you mentioned that a lot of times these students will have language delays and other things going on. So Mm -hmm. oftentimes I assume we won't just have the goal for the process. Yes. Uh, For those few processes that we're doing, how do you manage that then? Does that just determine their treatment minutes? 
for what I did personally, which I don't know is doable in all settings, I separated out their minutes. So we would do cycles for certain sessions. And then we would do their language based goals in a totally separate session. Because like I said, I have the structure down. And I mean, it really does take a full session for me to do the listen, practice, listen, check schedule. So for my students that I could write increased minutes for I would might write 80 minutes a week, and then use 60 for cycles 20 for a language goal. For students where that's not possible, or districts or SLPs where that's not possible, that's when you might spread a cycle or targeting a sound across two weeks, for example. So you might do 30 minutes one week, 30 minutes the next week, and then the other session do a language target. So I try not to mix them just because honestly, cycles is it's so much work. Like these little kids are such hard workers. They're really, really, really in it. You know, they're so focused. And it's like, I just feel like switching all the targets on them. Okay, we're gonna do this for 15 minutes. Oh, and now we're doing something that feels totally different, feels a little bit, I don't know, confusing, I guess, and a little bit overwhelming. So I would try to separate out, even if you have to do cycles slower, like I said, across two weeks, I would just separate the sessions if possible. And that's nice too, because I tried to keep my cycles groups only cycles groups as well. So then your other group can be more of a mixed group. You can always put them into a mixed group to do more language objectives another session. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's perfect. And then in terms of the mixed groups then too, like that's all the good stuff. So (laughs) kids are usually working on different words. Like they might be working on the same process or they might not. They might have the same words or they might not. So do you round robin through their sounds? Yeah. Do you minimize cycles, like a cycles group where they're working on different classes? Yeah. So then I'm round robining through. Honestly, my favorite activity is taking black and white flashcards, cutting them apart and gluing them onto index cards and then putting a hole punch through the index cards, putting a binder ring because then they can take that home. Well, you know, as I'm round robining, they're gluing, they're coloring, they're hole punching, they're doing kind of all the assembly part. And then I just work Mm -hmm through and I usually try to get you know, five or 10 productions while I'm working with them before I move on to the next student. So I'm not like, say one word, say one word, you know, across the group, you know, because that takes forever to get their attention. So I might work with a student for a minute and have them get 10 productions, and then they color and, you know, work on those cards then to the next student. So it's okay if they're working on different processes. If you can get them in line, that would be great. Like I said, there's, you know, usually in preschool to me, there was like the four heavy hitter processes. So some of the time it is possible to get them in the same routine and order, although it's just with absences and all sorts of stuff, it's definitely not possible all the time. Yeah. Like that's cool when that lines up because then they get additional auditory bombardment too. Exactly. So they're listening to me say it over and over. Yeah. And I even had a girl, she was working on a different process than her, her group mate. And she, then she was always wanting to work on their sound because she was like, Oh, I know that one. You know, it's like, no, no, no. Like stick to this one. But it is really good because they're hearing the same processes, the same wording, the same cueing over and over. So that, that works Mm -hmm. nice. Yeah. And do you ever use like the auditory bombardment, the headphones piece as like a alternating thing too? Yeah, I've done stations like centers. And I did that with my groups that were really, we had a high energy bunch. But then I I would literally have like a station for doing like jumping jacks and squats and then like a station for listening and then a station for working with me. So that works too, if you have a lot of movers and just 
all sitting at a table coloring their cards is not, you know, a re- <laughs> the reality. Centers worked really well for me too. I literally had posters that just said center one, center two, center three. I usually only had like three kids in preschool in a group together. So one's working with me. One's literally like, I'm like a drill sergeant. And I'm like, do pushups, keep jumping, like keep your body moving. You know, like, <laughs> I have little pictures that they have to follow. Yoga works great. And then the other one is sitting at my laptop doing the the headphones so i have the big noise canceling ones too so they they think they're like the coolest because i mean these tiny little kids with these huge headphones is always sweet (laughs) oh i love it yeah Yeah, and that's cool because then each of the centers is exciting in its own way like they get to work with you or they get to move around or they get to wear the cool headphones And I think some like the time away from me, you know, because when you're working one on one with an adult, you get a lot of feedback, you know, you get a Mm -hmm. lot of try that again. Nope, that's not quite right. You know, and then they're like, I just need like a breather break. So it's nice to just like, go do something the teacher's not necessarily monitoring what you're doing, you know, just go like, get your energy out for a minute. So you can come and have like a focused, productive, drill based, you know, time with me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then one other question too about just because you talked about this a little bit, but in terms of what to expect for progress, because you said you typically expect about two processes in a IEP period. Mm-hmm. It just it varies so much, and I'll say like you know I'm only a I don't know five years out of grad school, so I think that this just comes maybe with time is knowing how fast kids are expected to demonstrate progress versus other students. And I know there's diagnostic, like there's indicators of good progress. I mean, like I said earlier, really solid stimulability for a large amount of processes to me means faster progress. I see those kids just zoom through cycles. The tricky thing with cycles too, is I've seen almost in all of my kids who do cycles, correction of processes that we didn't even target. So like they have vowel errors, and then we work through their primary processes, and we fix them and their vowel errors self correct, or they have voicing errors that are really unusual, and those correct through a couple of cycles. So predicting progress has been challenging for me. And usually, honestly, in a good way where I'm like, Oh, they're gonna like, we're gonna work on final consonant deletion. And then the next year, they're not voicing errors, they don't have vowel errors, they you know, so like, that's a bit tricky. For collecting the progress, I usually just focus on yeah, like one or two different processes. Usually for real littles, it's cluster reduction and final consonant deletion, because I just find that those impact intelligibility so much. They're easy for parents to understand. They're easy for teachers, you know, to understand progress on some words like fronting, stopping, backing. I find those things sometimes a little bit confusing for teachers to really understand. Like I should mention this too, instead of just a home carryover, I do classroom carryover too. A lot of my preschoolers do centers in their classrooms where they're practicing sight words. Yes. So then I put their cycles cards in their sight word bin and they practice them in the classroom as well. So that's why I love that index card ring. That thing is like their words. And then, you know, then I go into their classroom each week and I swap them for like the next process we're working on and then swap them. So they might have three card decks of the same words, one at home, one in the classroom, one with me. So, but then I find, you know, teachers, when I'm sending these things into the classroom for something like fronting, I find that they're a little bit more confused, you know, just as what is fronting? What kinds of words are we working on? What do all these things have in common, you know, versus cluster reduction, final consonant deletion to me make a little bit more sense to anybody. Progress is tricky to predict, but I just feel like most of my students who are really eligible for cycles where they're stimulable, 
They can sit and do drill. I mean, we make really fast, huge gains, which is awesome. It's what, you know, but then, yeah, every caseload has those kids too, that are totally, you know, they feel idiosyncratic. You're not sure what, what errors they're making. There's so much going on. And, and those ones I'll admit to having a hard time predicting what they're going to improve on or how fast. Yeah. And I know that was a tricky question. It's one that parents always ask. And mm-hmm. so sometimes it's like, oh, what do I yeah. say? So yeah. I do that. Oh, every time. I swear every preschooler parent is like, so when is this going to be corrected? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> like there's not, I've tried looking for the research yeah. on like, yeah. this is what you can expect if you see these kinds of things, but it's not mm-hmm. out there. It's not out there. And the things that I find are are the obvious things. If they're more simulable, obviously, they're going to make faster progress. If mm-hmm. you have better attention, they can drill, they're going to make faster progress. But it's still mm-hmm. what is faster progress, what you know, what is expected within a certain amount of time is still just totally tricky. And I know therapists, I hear therapists talk about expected rate of progress. And I just think it might just take more years of experience mm-hmm. doing something over and over to really see what average looks like. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. if there's any researchers listening, yes, tell us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's Sometimes. definitely a struggle. I, I have that with my late talkers a lot too. You know, they're like, when are they going to talk? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And we can just talk about the factors that we're seeing. And yep. those things tell us that they're going to make more progress, but it's just really hard to put a specific timeline on it. Yes. Yes. Even though we would all like everyone would love to have that timeline. I know. (laughs) Uh, Or even just like a trajectory of, you know, the tricky thing is, you know, typical development just doesn't really apply in a lot of these situations. Mm -hmm. So that's what we have a lot of information on. And once a child is having a phonological disorder, you know, it'd be so nice to have some sort of development or trajectory for that subgroup of students, but I, I have yet to find a lot of info on that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I know we'll both keep looking and we'll share if we find anything else. Yes. Put the informed SLP on that. Yeah. (laughs) Come on, Meredith. Come on. (laughs) She's got us covered in so many ways though. (laughs) So good. And then just one last question to, well, two more, I guess. So do you have any other tips in terms of what to do if a student isn't quite ready for the cycles? Because you talked about the core word approach. Mm-hmm. Like, is there anything that you can do? Like, do you ever like see it where you use that approach and then you're able to switch into cycles? Or what does that kind of look like? The core word is usually my my favorite kind of one to go to because I find that with kids like that, where especially when I'm feeling like progress in cycles might be slow, you have frustrated parents, you have frustrated kids, you know, you just want to show something. And I want my students to feel successful in therapy, like, oh, now I can do this thing I couldn't do before. So core word to me has been the best backup step down from cycles. I usually pick like 10, you know, words that are really meaningful, like mom or their own name. And I work on those. After they might demonstrate some progress on core words, I might introduce that schedule, the listen, practice, listen, check and do it with core words. So I literally just make a voice recording of their core words, they listen to it, then we practice and we move into that session schedule. And then I can always swap out less motivating cycles based words later, you know, once that attention is it's usually attention or behavior, that's the tricky piece there. So then once that attention and behavior improves, then we can, you know, they're already in the right schedule. We just kind of swap out those 
motivating words and introduce more cycles based words. So that's kind of the progression I usually take for a student that just can't sit for cycles. I think maybe I had thinking it's got to be less than 10% of the kids that I've introduced cycles to that I've had to back up or had to do something because I don't know, I, I, I call it putting on my dog and pony show. I am very animated in therapy. I mean, it is like <laughs> cycles is like the most fun thing in the whole world. I do think students like it too, because they're we're only working on stimulable sounds. So you're not stuck just like make the K sound go cut, you know, for like 20 minutes where they're just not getting it. They're always saying words successfully. So usually cycles is pretty good. But the core word pushed into the cycles is kind of the route that I would take if they just can't attend to that drill based. Awesome. And then any other tips or strategies or things that we left out that you think would be really helpful? The one thing that maybe I haven't talked a little bit about is like activities that I do, which is probably really standard preschool activities. But I guess if you're listening and you are just starting to do cycles, usually my practice sessions don't just do drill. I mean, I do do drill. Once they get to 100, then usually I do like bowling. I like to put the cards under bowling pins. I can't think of the name of the house, but it's a classic speech toy with like little doors and doorbells on the different sides. So there's four doors, which works really well when you only have like five words, I'll shove one in in each door. So I usually do you have to get 100. And I use a clicker. And once we get to 100, we can play a game, these words or something to increase the motivation. So within that practice part, it's not just drill always, I usually incorporate some sort of movement thing towards the end before they have to listen and check again. So you can pretty much use any of your classic preschool activities, even on railroad pieces, I'll put the card on each track, for example, so you have to get 100. And then we're going to get your tracks out and we can build with this. So that's kind of how I use to increase that motivation piece for the the littles is I usually just say we just got to get to 100. And then we can do a scavenger hunt. That's another common one. I'll hide them, close your eyes, and we go find these five words or whatever. So I'm, I think that's the only thing that I, I had jotted down that we didn't get to that felt really, that was a lot of info. <laughs> yeah, so much good stuff. It's like, I'm going to go do cycles now. <laughs> no, this is so helpful. And it just makes so much sense. It's, it does. Like It's a little bit of work up front, but once yep. you do it, like you're five years out and you're still using the mm-hmm. same path, the same process. Yes. Yep. And then, like essentially your whole therapy for the year is planned. Exactly. My big thing for saving time for me has been isolating a group of students on your caseload that you can get everything done for. And then you're always going to have tricky kids. You're always going to have ones that don't fall into what prescribed programs say that students should look like, you know, and then those ones you can dedicate a lot of time to. But I like getting rid of huge subgroups of my caseload to really systematic therapy. And then you just don't think about it. And I really think kids prefer this over a lot of other things. Because like I said, the workout thing, well, if you're just working on arms 24 seven until you can do a pull up, I'm going to hate working out because that pull up seems really elusive. And you're working and working and working and working and you're not getting anywhere and your arms are fatiguing and everything's frustrating versus saying, we're gonna do this for a week. And then we're going to move on to something else. And maybe your, your arms will strengthen up, you know, while we're doing something, you just feel a lot more successful with the constant moving. So you didn't get it. All right. And it's no worries next week with we're doing a different sound, you know, or it just I feel like the frustration in preschool is so decreased doing cycles. So that's been really, really nice as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much. This was incredibly helpful. I know people are going to love this. And if they want to find out more about what you do and get more of your awesome tips, where can they find you? 
So you can find me speechy musings anywhere, Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, email, it's S P E E C H Y musings. It's plural. And then I share daily on Instagram, I share lots of pictures of my products and different ideas of how to use them and different carryover ideas and things like that too. And then you also have the cycles kit. That's in my Teachers Pay Teachers store. So again, that's under Speechy Musings. It's my bestseller. So it's like the top one, right when you click in, you can find it there. If you have any questions about cycles, you can feel free to email me. I'm pretty available via email. But that's where to find all the cycles. I think I have a blog post too about kind of how I set it up with lots of photos and stuff as well. That's on my blog, speechymusings.com. Yeah, and I'll share all of those links in the show notes too. You'll be able to see... Because I think you had a blog post explaining how you set it up and then you have different ideas on how to organize them. Yeah. So my original idea was in like a toolbox Mm -hmm. that I bought like at a home improvement store. But I know a lot of people are itinerant or might move around a lot. So I have just different ideas of how to store all the flashcards and stuff you need for cycles for people who might move between schools and such. And again, like you can use those ideas with any flashcard sets. It's not necessarily because you're starting from scratch, mine makes it super easy. But if you have stuff already, you can just read through the information and organize your own materials in that way, too. Awesome. Well, thank you. And yeah, yeah, check out the show notes for all of the other links. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the SLP Now podcast. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. So yes, you can earn ASHA CEUs for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with your SLP friends. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to get the latest episodes sent directly to you. See you next time.